Hi everyone, it's Dan here with How to College First Gen, our podcast where we get together over some coffee and have some real conversations about what it's like to be a first-generation college student and what that means before, during, and after college. If you're a new listener, our goal here is to democratize some knowledge about what we've gained along the way, learn a bit more about the first-gen experience, and hopefully help others going through some of the same challenges we've experienced by sharing other stories from our fellow first-gens. I'm Dan, and I'm one of the new podcast co-hosts, and I recently graduated from the University of Pennsylvania. In this episode, it's all about first gens and personal finance and financial wellness. These two terms are often used interchangeably, but they're actually slightly different. Personal finance, you can think of as just a general understanding of one's finances and the different aspects of finance, whether it's banking, credit, investing, retirement. And financial wellness, I think, is more of like a mindset and a practice that utilizes the knowledge that comes with personal finance. And as a first-gen myself, I know that I had to learn a lot of things about personal finance by myself. Uh, And it took me a while before I really found like a way to be financially well. And that doesn't mean like having a lot of money. It means like making good financial decisions that I am comfortable with and that make me feel like I am a whole person. Um, So in this episode, I'm really excited to share stories from three of my fellow first gens. First, we have John, who's a junior at the University of Pennsylvania. And he, like me, is someone who learned a lot about personal finance all on his own. And he talks about his experiences in high school and going into college and how he got involved with a new group called common sense where he really tries to share the how-to steps for other first gens who are trying to understand personal finance and financial wellness. Next we have Kamani who's one of my friends who's also a QuestBridge scholar and a graduate from Northwestern University. She is starting her first full-time salary job and she shares her story on how she had to shift her money mindset and how uh, saving was a privilege and with that comes a lot of change. Kamani's story is full of wisdom and insight for anyone who's just graduating college and starting on a new frontier. And then lastly, we have a special guest to close us out, uh, Dagmara Wozniak, who's a two-time Olympian, bronze medalist, fencer. She shares her perspective as a more seasoned first-gen, and she also shares her story and some lessons about credit, the importance of using financial management tools, and also her partnership with Navit. If you didn't know, Navit is a personal finance app available to anyone. Um, it's a great tool to help you get on track of managing your budget. And there's so many cool perks, and their Instagram will be linked at the end of this episode. They also have great tips on their um, website and their app as well. So definitely check it out. Hey, John, nice to have you on our podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself for our audience? Really glad to be here. My name is John, currently a junior at Penn, originally from Massachusetts, and I'm a Figley student myself. So this episode is about first gens and financial wellness. So this concept of learning how to take control of your finances and have financial goals and be in control and be secure. I think something a lot of first gens may struggle with is having come from a low income background or having to navigate like a lot of like unique financial situations. So my first question to you is before college, how would you describe your experience with like personal finance? Was it something that you knew a lot about or? was it something you kind of thought about? I guess my first memory of this whole personal finance, financial literacy shenanigans was actually when I was about 15 to 16 years old. I remember my parents putting down like a W-2 on the table because I had done a summer job and asking me to figure out my tax situation because at the time they thought I was like smart enough to figure all this out. Obviously, like being 15, 16, I was very scared. took a lot of Googling, but I was essentially able to figure out what I need to do after maybe 100 Google searches. But something else actually happened when I was about 17 to 18, I had to then file for very complicated tax situation where I had both a 1099 MISC and a W-2 that required me to file a full 1040. And filing a full 1040 is not something people typically do until they're maybe 30. So that was really weird. And I remember talking to like the H&R Block consultant tax person and they were like, why are you in this situation right now? And I was just like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure this out myself. But being in those shoes and having to explore personal finance at an early age sparked my curiosity early on. So I ended up like searching up more about credit cards, even though my 
parents were like somewhat scared of them, I'd say. Looked into like different types of bank accounts. I was kind of curious. There was a bank called TD Bank. This is like a more of like Northeast Bank, I'd say. My parents were signing for these TD Bank accounts because that was the one that was available in our town. And I was kind of curious, like, why did they choose TD Bank specifically? And I had seen on TV ads, for example, that there were a bunch of like sign up bonuses, all these like cool things you could earn a bunch of money for. And I was just very interested in all of it and started exploring more and more about how credit cards work, how bank accounts work, like what sign up bonuses were. And that kind of led me into my first year of college, I would say. That's so interesting. Just learning for yourself. I think that's very relatable. Like what I had to do, just like, hey, I don't know this. I don't know if my parents know this, but let me just figure it out. You know, how to do research for class. It's kind of the same. It sounds like you put a lot of time and thought into this. Would you say that personal finance is like something really important to you and why? I would definitely regard personal finance as one of my passions in school right now. The sort of vision I have with personal finance in general is it's the essential ability to make money when you aren't doing anything at times and being able to set yourself up successfully for the future, however, whatever that means. And those sort of things just combine together and they're really appealing to me. For example, opening your Roth IRA, the retirement account. I think that's a really cool concept. You know, you always hear about it, but then actually putting your like first hundred dollars into it and watching those contributions grow over time is all like really cool things because I know in a decade right now if I just make some annual contribution of say like $100, $1,000 after I get my first job I know that money is going to grow in the future and I'll have like a very good comfortable sort of backing for myself 10, 20 years on the road like coming up and being raised in a background where money was hard to come by and being able to be in this position where I'm able to position myself for my own financial success or financial independence is a really really good feeling it's part of the reason why I view personal finance as so important I agree. Just that security is like really important and being able to take control when for so long, you know, like as a kid, like you can't work, you're just dependent on your parents' situation and, you know, also wanting to be able to help them eventually is another thing. So you carried your passions until college. What's like one activity that you do that helps you feel this passion of yours for personal finance? I guess this actually answers more of like the importance of personal finance, but I just think it's really cool just to be able to figure out ways to create passive income. So passive income is essentially like money that just kind of grows on its own. So whether that be in a high yield savings account, whether that be in a lazy portfolio, I know that I'm able to leave my money in. It's like growing and that's being put to work as opposed to being put underneath, like just left underneath my pillow. I think that concept is just really cool. And it's like important to understand, but has also contributed to my sort of experiences in college. So essentially in July, 2019 was when I launched Common Sense, which is a personal finance nonprofit empowering students with the ability to manage their money and lead them to their own financial independence. This organization has really just encapsulated my passion for personal finance and like how important I view it to be. Because coming into college, actually, when I was 18, I remember trying to figure out how to sign up for my first credit card because my parents had always raised me with this concept that credit is important, credit cards are scary, we don't really understand too much about how they work, but you should get a credit card because they're good, apparently. And I remember like Googling a whole bunch of things with this and I just got absolutely so confused for whatever reason. There was things like secure versus unsecured credit, APRs, annual fees. Like I was just so overwhelmed. You could just go on and on the list about credit cards. Overdraft fees was a huge one that I had no idea how those worked either. That was more checking accounts. But I felt victim to the predatory nature of the banking system, even though I had done my own research. I remember signing up for this secured $29 annual fee credit card. This wasn't a very good card, but that was like the first financial mistake that I made that really catalyzed my interest in personal finance, which then ended up helping me really realize that at a lot of schools across the nation, there's just a lack of quality personal finance education. High school, I hadn't learned anything specific. College, I didn't learn anything specific. And the ones that existed just kind of throw a lot of garble at you. For example, who's to say you know what an APR is? Most people don't even know how interest rate works. And not to say like compounding interest is just so hard for people to actually fathom. It kind of just combines all together, right? The biggest thing I've realized is that you can't really tell people what to do and not show them how to do it, right? It's like those two things are so different from each other and ties into personal finance. Like a lot of people here open a Roth IRA? How do you actually do it? And then the other thing is on that same note, I was the person that had to take the own initiative to catalyze my own journey in personal finance because I was placed in the position where if I didn't figure it out, then bad stuff could happen. But on that same note, I wish there was a time where personal finance information, that curiosity was more external, like it was given to me because I feel as though like after talking to a lot of my peers, people just don't know where to start with their personal finances. My credit card situation, I just had no idea where to like even search up. It was just credit cards, credit scores, etc. And I wish I had some sort of programming that gave me like a very simple avenue of where to begin to set me on that journey to my own financial success rather than me having to wander through a bunch of bushes and cutting down trees to get on that path for the future. So making that path more clear is like definitely a passion of mine now I would say. 
That's so important. Just the whole challenge of like, you can find all these resources, but it's like, where do you start? Like, what's even worth reading right now? You know, you're at a certain stage. So like, that actually leads me to a good question, which is as a college student, what do you think are some like very specific challenges that you might face as a first gen student? And how have you tried to solve those through personal finance? Say, for example, like having a bank account, having somewhere to put your money if you're receiving like a stipend from the university or if you have a work-study job, why is it important to have a bank account? If you have a job with your university, right, as a work-study job, and they're paying you like $3,000 for the semester, and you leave those $3,000 underneath your pillow, that $3,000 is essentially going to be the same $3,000 after you lift up your pillow. Or if there's inflation, that $3,000 is going to be worse than $3,000, which is kind of unfortunate. (laughs) But in the case of bank accounts, bank accounts are a way to put your money sort of like virtually, and it just gives you more convenience and access to that money using like debit cards, for example. But I think a really cool thing that kind of ties into the idea of putting things in front of people so they can learn about them is things called high yield savings accounts. I didn't learn about these things until I was 19, but I wish I had learned about them when I was like 15 or 14, right? Because high yield savings accounts are essentially these bank accounts that are completely virtual. They're offered by Capital One and Marcus by Goldman Sachs, Discover, and they give you interest rates that are almost like 100 times more than your standard Chase bank account. So it's like those little things that kind of ties into like the challenges as a college student. It's like learning what is actually out there. There's just so much information out there, like you were saying, Dan, but it's really key to find organizations or like resources that can really consolidate all of that and help you give like the high level points. It's kind of ties into the mission of common sense. Be realistic, like we're bringing really useful personal finance information to people, helping spark their curiosity in a subject so that they don't necessarily have to go through the same like credit card issues I did originally so that they can avoid most of the challenges that other first generation students like myself have encountered on their own journeys. Another really good example is the Roth IRA. We always hear about retirement. We always think about it's like, oh, this is like 45 years away, right? But the TLDR there is the fact that compounding interest is such a powerful tool, you can essentially put in money into a Roth IRA, and then take it out later on. So you can put in $1,000 to a Roth IRA, and let's say it grows at 5% a year. So next year, it'll be worth a few more dollars than 1000. But essentially, you can take out the earnings that you make on that $1,000 at no tax. So if you needed that money back, those earnings, then you can also take that out. But that $1,000 you put in is going to be taxed if you withdraw it before the age of 65. But long story short, right, is like compounding interest is such a powerful tool. And the earlier you start, the more money you make later on. I always see these really interesting graphics that's like, oh, if I put my money five years earlier, I can make like 200,000, 300,000 more in the long run. And one of the issues that I've noticed just with numbers, these big numbers, is that it's just so hard to really fathom just how big those numbers are with just the minutia difference. So it kind of ties back to the point I was saying earlier. You can't tell somebody what it is and then expect them to do anything with it. You have to show them how to do it. Even just like putting their hands on the wheel and helping them sign up for that Roth IRA when they're 18 or 19 is going to help them set up their own futures rather than them setting it up when they're like 22 or 23 after hearing about it, not knowing how to actually act on that information. These are some really great examples. Some things I heard from you, one is finding an organization if there is one on your campus. I wanted to ask you, like, does Common Sense have like materials that are accessible to people that aren't just on Penn's campus? Yeah, so Common Sense is actually now at 8 Unis. So we're at like Tufts, Yale, Hopkins, NYU. The website is like commonsense.org if you're really interested. But a lot of the stuff that we actually have in terms of content, for example, on the Instagram or on the website more specifically, are going to be really tailored towards college students. I actually held an event called Finessing Your Finances, where I talked about really, really interesting ways to sort of break the system. Like, for example, like my friends know me as like the person that breaks delivery apps. I haven't paid over $8 for a meal on delivery app since when I first started. And it's just because I know the ways like the legal loopholes in the system, (laughs) to say the least. But it's like those sort of things that are really relevant for college students, because we're always thinking about these like little things that are kind of fun, like especially when you get that really, really crazy deal. Like I remember I ordered $40 worth of cheeseburgers, and then I ordered on Uber Eats and got it for $5 with tip and stuff. So it's like those little things that are really fun. If you can figure out your niche in personal finance, and especially in terms of like, maybe you need a community center around personal finance, talk about these things like common sense. That's like where I really start to see personal finance being like a deep, deep passion of mine. Because I find it fun, right? You can't just build something and expect it not to be fun in some sense. But common sense definitely has a lot of resources, I'd say. That's great to hear. When you were talking about like food, you can use what you learn about personal finance to help you figure out like, yeah, like how can I get food for lower costs? Or like, if you're planning a trip home, like how can you save money on your flights using like a credit card reward system even the basic stuff of like knowing how to budget and prepare for things like living off campus in the summer those are some like really big things that can kind of feel overwhelming but like when you start 
start learning some of those foundational skills, like how to budget, learning what resources are available on your campus or online, like can start filling some of those gaps. Which kind of leads me to like another topic. As a college student, like are there any like new things that you're facing now? You know, you've learned so much more about like personal finance. Is there still something that you think you're struggling with that you'd want to share with the audience? It's always this very interesting situation of like imposter syndrome, especially in terms of like monetary wealth. I have friends that have Canada gooses. It's always like the classic meme, these thousand dollar jackets that I can't even imagine myself ever buying (laughs) in that sort of scenario. Like I'm still struggling with this, but it's always been kind of interesting to figure out ways to alleviate those sort of tensions. So like, for example, for clothes, right? Instead of like buying that like thousand dollars Canada goose, like I like to remind myself that like, I don't think I'm wasting money by getting like a nice North Face or even like a Uniqlo jacket. Like it's still like super high quality. It gets the job done for me and i have no shame in it to be fair the differential between the two is maybe 800 to thousand dollars and i can use that 800 to thousand invested in my own self using a lazy portfolio and now i'm getting money and it all kind of works out right i can use that money towards my housing rent or etc so i always just basically remind myself that now that i'm in this position i have been raised with this mindset of like buy what you need to buy not necessarily anything more just for like the social status is probably my take on things but it's always like very difficult and it's always like a struggle because you're just surrounded by it all the time so it's like that voice in your head that's like knocking all the time and it's just like Hello, there are a bunch of people around here that clearly have more, way more money than you and your family. But just to remind yourself that you were raised in that way and you should be proud of it, I guess is how I view it now, right? And it's taught me to be really, really good with my expenses. Like my friends view me as the expense person whenever we go to eat. Like I'm the one handling all the like differentials in terms of the money because I enjoy it. But that sort of like training, that sort of like mindset would never have come. Like I've never have launched Common Sense or developed a passion for personal finance if I had never been raised with a first generation background. And it's like definitely something I'm proud of, but definitely comes up at times for sure. Yeah, that's real. Everyone's on like a different journey and how that like affects your mindset, how you view money, for example, like something that I was talking about with another mentor was this idea of like, so often we have this scarcity mindset, but in actuality, like money can sometimes be abundant depending on how resourceful you are, whether it's like investing or, you know, using a high interest savings account or, you know, identifying like a side hustle or project, you know, so there's different things out there. Based on all you've shared, you know, I'm really curious, are there any like specific tips or tricks you want to share that like you've learned that might really help other first gens that are trying to learn more about financial wellness some of the basic tips that I would recommend for any college student the moment you turn 18 get your first high yield savings account like get that rolling that's like a bunch of money you don't want to be leaving on the table here's a very general mindset thing all the cash back cards all like the high yield savings account don't think the interest is small just because it says 2% 5% don't fool yourself it's almost as if you're leaving hundreds of dollars on the table if you take that mindset I know people that have taken that mindset and I'm just sitting here with several hundred dollars earned in cash back several hundred dollars earned in interest and you know what the difference between me and them was I was open to change I was open to trying out these new things so never ever take the mindset that these are marginal numbers because they really stack up as you start to use your cards and save up a lot of money but in terms of other tips i said hi you'll save account get your first credit card literally as soon as you can i wish i got my first card the moment i turned 18 i waited like six months for some reason because building that credit takes a while a huge factor in your credit score is actually dependent on how long you've owned that credit card for and you really want to start demonstrating good credit behavior as soon as you get your foot in the door because good credit score is essentially going to help you save literally tens hundreds of thousands dollars throughout your entire life. I remember looking into this for house mortgages. There was this very interesting thing where a differential in like 10 to 20 points on your credit score, like your FICO credit score, could literally save you like $5,000. It's ridiculous to think about. Could be debatable in terms of the efficacy of the credit score system, but we live in this system and we can't really change it right now. So we might as well play how the game works, I'd say. I guess other things I would probably think about, especially for people that are like 21, 22, like my age, is thinking about annual fee credit cards. Like don't necessarily be turned off by them just because there's an annual fee. I think this is like kind of gets into like a really, really interesting part of like personal finance which was churning. Churning is like very difficult, but if you can figure it out, it's like a very lucrative area. Like for example, I have a hotel credit card that costs me $99 a year, but it gives me one free hotel night every year as well. And it also gives me a bunch of like other perks. So those sort of things outweigh each other for me, especially the hotel nights, which is like value like 150, 200. I basically make money on this hotel card, even though I spend an annual fee. Other things for people in general, just get like apps like Mint, Credit Karma, just be able to track like everything that's going on in your life, just so you can be very wary of any security fraud that comes up because identity theft is seriously like no joke and it's always a good idea to like check in on those once in a while and i think one other final like habitual tip or habit that people should develop is taking mint or taking their credit cards and all their apps and just checking on them like when you're eating breakfast when you're maybe like just scrolling through on your phone just spending like five minutes a week or every two weeks is honestly so good for your financial health so you can like make sure you're not missing any bills etc that's probably what the biggest tips i would probably think about 
Those are all really great tips, especially the one about like credit. One thing I want to add there is I think it's kind of a discipline thing, but also like you can get rewarded for just, you know, using your credit card for the basic bills you already pay. If you're already paying a phone bill, which I know a lot of college students do, like that would probably not even be like 10% of your credit limit. And that would put you in a good position to like show good credit history and just set you up early. Just having the discipline to just use it for like the basic things you already pay on that like could give you greater incentive in the future. Yeah, the fact that you're paying like $50, in your phone bill, right, and you can earn cash back on that, it's just like you're leaving free money if you don't have a cash back card. Even if you earn 1% on that, 1% of 100 is $1, 1% of 1,000 is 10, right? And then that number just grows. The more money you spend, you get more back. For sure, for sure. So the last thing I want to ask, we talked about common sense as a resource, but, you know, if someone wanted to get started on learning more about personal finance, do you have any other like strong websites or like resources that you would recommend to other first gens? I think I honestly learned so much of my stuff from websites like NerdWallet, Investopedia, those sort of classic areas. But if you're more advanced and you're interested in really understanding how to churn systems, I figured out a way to earn like one to two K a year just off of very comfortable credit card bonuses and stuff that I'm already planning on opening because I want to diversify my credit card portfolio. I figured out ways to essentially get free vacations for myself every year. So I think those sort of hacks are only available through churning or using really good travel credit cards. And I think that's kind of fun, honestly. I think the total annual fees I pay right now are $200 a year and I get a vacation every year worth maybe $400, $500. And those are things I learned from Doctor of Credit or um, the Points Guy, very classic travel websites. And Reddit has like a really good churning feed as well. Reddit also has a really good personal finance. But I guess smaller organizations like the Finance Twins, which was launched by a pen alum, more low-key, more comfortable areas, I would say, where they talk about things in a very, very easy to understand manner. Blogs on that level, I think, are also really, really good personal finance communities and resources. There's like three buckets, I would say. Like the big ones where I first started off the middle ones with like churning materials i find that super interesting and then smaller low-key ones well thank you so much for all the like tips you shared today i'm sure they'll be like really helpful for our audience i even learned a thing or two and you know i care just as much about personal finance as you do so thank you again for your time i'm looking forward to seeing what else you accomplish Hey, Kimani, it's nice to have you on our podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, sure. It's good to be here. My name is Kimani Isaac. I graduated from Northwestern University in December of 2020 with a major in learning and organizational change. And I was there as a QuestBridge match scholar. So I applied through QuestBridge and was lucky to match and receive a full scholarship. Oh, and I'm originally from New York City, I spent way too long, too much of my life in New Jersey. I just try to block those years out. And by and large, I think coming to Northwestern and the Chicagoland area has been a really great experience, especially as I was mostly just trying to get as far away from New Jersey as possible. (laughs) That is relatable. I grew up in like the Midwest for a bit and then also wanted to go away. So going to like the East Coast was kind of fun for me. I also learned that you graduated, but also got a full-time job. So congrats on that. Do you want to share where you work with the team? Yeah, sure. So I am currently an associate consultant with Kaiser Associates. They're a boutique consulting firm based out of Washington, D.C. And I started remote back in January. Awesome. Congrats again. You know, what would you, if you were going to define like financial wellness, like what is that? This is a good question. And, you know, I think it's different for everybody. But for me, financial wellness is about making sure that I have a really good understanding of what my priorities in life are. And that when I'm building my budgets, when I'm thinking about saving and how much to save and how much to contribute to my, you know, retirement accounts or investing accounts, that I'm aligning my money according to my priorities. And I think I'll be honest, I think I didn't really understand, like beyond the basics of just like paying my bills, right? I don't think I really understood how to allocate the money that I saved until I really understood myself better as a human being and what was important to me. So personal finance in general has really helped me get a clearer understanding of how I am. And I found that that's been the best way to approach how I then allocate my money. So financial wellness, I think really is also tied to personal wellness and making sure that you can actively manage your mental health when it comes to money specifically. 
That's a great way to put it. Yeah. And so with that, you started talking about like when you were learning. So like, when did you first start learning about like these concepts of like financial wellness or like personal finance? So this was, this was a hard question for me. And I spent some time thinking about it. And I realized that, you know, I had always, I, I think I had been really lucky growing up to have a mom who was really conscientious about teaching me like the basics of how to manage money. My mom is really great at making sure that all the bills are paid on time, that she has good money habits, but that's very limited as well in a, in circumstances where you just maybe don't have as much to play with, right? So I think I really started to get maybe <laughs> the word that's coming to mind is like anal retentive and obsessive. And I think I really started to get in depth about personal finance when my grandmother died in my at the end of my first year of college. She and I and, and my mom had all had really complicated relationships and histories. And when she died, she left me an insurance policy that was basically way more money than I had ever had in my life, which was give or take about 10k and I think I immediately like panicked in all honesty because growing up like I had the responsibility of my mom in the sense that I would always like pay the bills like my mom in high school put me in charge of paying the cable bill and so she would give me the money that we would use to pay the cable bill and it was my responsibility to make sure that it was paid on time I mean like I've been in I've been responsible for paying my phone bill since I was like 16 around that age but I was never very good at saving and growing up I think my mom probably in an effort to make me be more responsible and it worked but it also was you know complex would often kind of call me a spendthrift and so I had this belief about myself that I was a spendthrift and that I just kind of wasted money and I think I was really coming from a place of like I want to like enjoy things and I want to like, if there's something that I can get that I want and I have the money to do it, then why not just spend the money? And what that meant was I didn't necessarily have the best habits when it came to saving. So I had responsibility when it came to paying bills, but I was never really a great saver. And when my grandmother died, I panicked because I was like, this is such an incredible opportunity. I don't want to fuck it up. And I'm going to be really honest, like I kind of fucked it up, but I think I did it in a way where at least I was true to my values. So I don't have that money now today, but that's because it mostly went to like enabling me to study abroad more than once while I was in college and helped me actually like finance my life abroad during my studies. So at the time, my grandmother had died. I had this money. I don't, I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm me. I'm a spendthrift. I still had that like voice in my head. Right. And I ended up going on Tumblr <laughs> because that was what had helped me when I was studying for the SATs. Like usually there's all of these like really great resources on Tumblr. And I ran across um, all of these like personal finance blogs and one of my favorite ones that I found, they're still like super active on Tumblr. Honestly, you can get so much like amazing content. They're called Bitches Get Riches. So they have a Tumblr and they also have their own website where they post. They also have a Patreon. And what I really loved about that website, excuse me, compared with others that I had looked at was that, you know, when you're just starting out with personal finance, I think there's, I think a lot of people tend to focus on budgeting and budgeting is fine. You know, like budgeting works really well for some people. I think it's a great place to start. But the problem is that it's also a very basic concept. And I think it doesn't always get at the heart of what people really are dealing with when they're dealing with money, which is a lot of anxiety and insecurity. At least that was true for me, right? Because I think everybody, for the most part, feels like they don't have enough. Even if you can understand that, like, you're doing pretty well compared to, like, where you're at or where your family is at or where the neighborhood is at. Like, everybody could use more money. And so Bitches Get Riches was really useful to me because here was a blog that was meant for people who don't have any money. <laughs> and not only that, but it was funny. It was accessible. It made me want to read and to come back for more. And so that resource in combination actually with a friend of mine who I think without realizing how 
particularly passionate. I was about personal finance. She's much older. She's in her 30s. She's married. She's thinking about having a kid. But she took me to this women's club in New York when I visited home for the holidays. And (laughs) she was like, look, I'm going to have you be my guest where I'm going to take you around. This is going to be your future. (laughs) And they happened to be doing a prenup workshop. And she was like, we're going. And I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, this is going to be, you know, you're going to need this. You're going to need to know this someday. And I was like, I love my friend. But to this day, I still remember thinking to myself, she has no idea what she's talking about. But I love her anyway. Sure, let's sit down and see what this prenup workshop is all about. And it was run by a lawyer and a therapist the psychologist. And it ended up actually being fantastic. Like one of the best workshops on finance and money that I think I've ever taken, partly because A, it was about money and relationships, right? So already you're starting to get at the psychology aspect of money, which was something that I felt like I was underserved on. And also, you know, with a therapist talking about money, you know, she put up these two slides that asked you to like critically interrogate your relationship with money, your parents' relationship with money, the things that they had taught you, the things that you wanted to carry on to ask yourself, you know, how how do I want my financial future to look? What are the habits that I have now? What are the habits I want to have five years down the road, 10 years down the road, etc. And then to be able to have a conversation like that with a partner, which I was not partnered at the time, but I felt like, oh my gosh, like this is what I needed. I needed to get a better handle on my feelings of shame and guilt to really critically understand how I wanted to spend my money and also to unlock what would make it worth it for me to save my money because that's what I didn't understand before is how, you know, I've always been pretty good at delayed gratification when it came to studies and to school, but not as much when it came to money. And so it became about getting clear on my long-term goals so that I could make saving attractive to myself. I really like what you said there at the end, like, how how do you make it make sense? Why is this important to you? Like, we talked about, like, this obsession you had early on. Like, like why is personal finance important to you? Like, how do you make saving and, like, investing, like, meaningful to you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, so I think the way now that I make saving and investing meaningful to me is... It's twofold. So I have a really good sense of my long-term goals, right? But I also acknowledge that perfection and good behavior are kind of automatic setup setups for failure. And what I mean by that is I do I, I set up my accounts in such a way that the money that goes into my savings account, I don't really see automatically. I put them in accounts on their own. One is marked saving. It's a high interest savings account account that I can access if I need to, but it would take me a couple days to do it. And so that's the first thing is like, I need to be able to put away money that I know I don't need to touch right away. And then the other thing is I put about, I put a lot of money towards retirement and I never see that money and I can't touch that money until I'm 60. And I'm basically just like hoping that the world lasts that long so that I can like have a good retirement. Right. And so in some sense, I'm going to be really honest, like I'm saving for retirement I don't necessarily believe in because like I just it's so hard for me to imagine living that long or the world being around in 2060 whatever but I'm doing it because I know I have to because I want to give my future self that gift of not worrying and I can like make emotional peace with the fact that I'm just not going to have that money and so part of one one of the things that I struggled with at first actually was figuring out, you know, as a student, how do I, how do I know when I have enough money that I'm not going to need? Because I always ran into this problem of like trying to save before I really could and then feeling guilty about not being able to save. And I wish somebody could have just said to me like, look, just stop stressing about this. You've got like so much else going on in your life. Honestly, focus more on increasing your income by like getting, you know, a really good paying job or just like doing this other thing and like leave the whole obsession about saving to the wayside until you can actually do it. And so the other thing I'm going to wholeheartedly say about this is that saving is a privilege. It is an immense 
just iceberg level privilege. Like on the surface, it seems so easy. And 80% of it is like having enough money coming in to even be able to say, oh, I can save. I cannot spend this money right away. Like this is, I think this is legitimately the first time in my life I've ever really been able to say like I am actively saving rather than just slowly wearing down whatever I have in the reserve. So the way that I save now is, you know, being like an early call, being an early graduate with a job, I have the tools in place, I have money coming in regularly enough that beyond the money that I allocate for my bills, like I have a really good handle on what bills I have to pay and I keep track of all of that in a spreadsheet. So I use some budgeting techniques, but I'm not really a great budgeter in the sense that I don't like to think to myself, okay, I have $20 to spend on food, let me know spend above that amount because then things start to feel really restrictive and I instantly start to rebel. So it's more like, okay, I have this nebulous amount that I know I need to spend on food if I estimate about like 50 bucks a week for groceries or like however much for restaurants and then within that amount it's okay if I go a little bit over like I try not to give myself these really hard caps because I know I start to resent them so beyond so like once I figured out all of my budget like all of my bills however much like those costs per month and then like my food uh, which is more variable you know like once I had hit that point I was like okay I'm gonna give myself more money than I think I need to with the understanding that like something is always going to come up that's unexpected that's really fucking frustrating that's going to make you spend money even if it's something as simple as like oh I want to have really nice shampoo and conditioner because such is life (laughs) then you know then at least like you can pay for that and beyond that beyond whatever makes you feel comfortable with the quality of life that you have you save and what I also really liked was that there were ratios that I hadn't known about. So the I so the like ratio to reach for is spending like no more than 30% of your income after tax on your rent or on your mortgage or whatever. I didn't know that that was a thing. And then the ideal is like no more than 50% of your income after tax on your living expenses, including rent. And then once you've hit that 50%, some, you know, that's where it gets a little bit more touch and go. You know, some people say maybe 30% for like extra expenses or unexpected, you know, things that come up or savings goals that you have. Um, And then save at least 20% of your paycheck after tax just to keep or and then allocate within that 20% for retirement. And I think once I had that percentage to go like those percentages to go off of, it became easier to say to myself, well, actually, I think I want to see if I can like get all of my living expenses about 30 to 40%. Can I do better than this? And actually, maybe I want to save like 60% of my after-tax paycheck. And at the time, that was impossible. But now that I have a job that pays me decently well, that's my reality. But again, that's a huge privilege. Not everybody can do that. And so you have to be really realistic and graceful with yourself about this is how much I actually have. This is how much I actually need to spend in order to feel like I'm not starving myself of a good life. And once you can be honest about both, I think that's where you can start to say, okay, here are the compromises I'm willing to make. Here are the things I'm not willing to compromise on. And the hard thing for me now is recognizing like I'm always going to have goals that don't line up with my paycheck. And that's frustrating, but at least acknowledging that that's what I want to reach for helps me say, okay, if I were if I were willing to give up this or willing to give up that, if I could eat less, like eat out less, could I then afford this? And so that's where you start to make the trade-offs with yourself in a way that is less about, at least for me, it was less about me shaming me about my spending habits and kind of pushing away the voice that my mom had given me and more about, okay, here's what's important to me. Here's what I need in order to maintain not just sanity, but comfort with the life that I lead. Here's where there's room to improve. Because once you have that clear cut knowledge of all of your bills and everything that you're spending on, you could say, I think you also kind of naturally get an understanding of, okay, I know I could spend less here if I really wanted to. I know I could spend more here if I really needed to. So 
it's about it's about starting to figure out where the lines are for yourself and understanding what your real goals are. And I mean, I just had a conversation with a friend a few weeks ago where I was like, I can't believe I'm saying this because I know I'm making like pretty good money at my first job, but I don't want this to be like the only amount that I ever end up making in my life. And on the one hand, that's really complex to reckon with because it's like, well, yeah, of course you don't want to like make the same amount of money for the rest of your life. But also like what immense gratitude and like exasperation to be able to say like in the middle of a pandemic where like I had to go through interview rounds like twice in two years because my first offer was not rescinded but like pushed so far into the future that I could not actually make it financially feasible to be able to say like wow I am I'm all right like for the first time maybe since like 2001 like I'm all right you touched on a lot of really great tips. I think a big thing that I've heard is like, you know, this is a great opportunity for you to finally start thinking about investing. And like, I did want to make space for you to, you know, share any advice or tips you have about that. Okay, so I think the first thing, like when you get a full-time job and you have steady money coming in and you figured out all your shit because you've worked on yourself as a person and you know your spending habits and what you want for your quality of life, get to know like if you are working in a job where you have a benefits package of any kind or any kind of access to corporate certifications or things like that, get to know that shit in and out. Read your contract over and over again until you understand every single piece of it. Because we live in a country, by and large, that doesn't really give a shit about old people. And I have news for you if you want to live a good life. You're going to be old someday, ideally, or maybe not ideally. And you're going to, there's going to come a point where it's literally just going to be either not feasible for you to work or just like, you're not going to want to work. You're going to be emotionally spent after like 30 to 40 years of giving everything that you have to a job that you may or may not care much about. Some people, their last few years before retirement, my dad is there right now. He like, he looks at his boss every day and internally he yells at him. Like, you need to have a plan for yourself for when you're not going to be able to work anymore because there's going to probably be around 20 years where that's going to be the case at the end of your life. So investing is one way to plan for a retirement. There is also, you know, some people like to invest in real estate with the goal of collecting passive income through rent or through mortgages. Um, Other people have different retirement schemes that rely on them running a business and then selling that business. There's there's a lot of information out there about how to retire. But concerning investing, you may or may not have the opportunity to take part in an employee-sponsored 401k or retirement account. If so, take advantage of it. If you're if you are like completely fucking just confused as hell about investing and where to start and you're not too concerned about lowering your taxes, I would say start with any account that that begins with the name Roth, R-O-T-H, because those are accounts that you contribute to with after-tax dollars that will not be taxed for any uh, deduction you make in retirement. And that's really important because that means that money is going to grow tax-free, collecting compound interest for decades. And you need, like, in all honesty, it doesn't matter if the market is low or high. I mean, it does. There's probably going to be some weird dude bro later who like follows up and is like, it really does matter if the market is low or high. Fine. The most important thing is that you invest early because the idea is that the markets are always growing. Sometimes they have dips, sometimes they have peaks. But when you average out 10 years, on the whole, there's been growth. Historically, for the entire history of the country and of this particular civilization we find ourselves in, there's been growth. And you want to create like diversified portfolios that can aggregate that growth. And you want to be able to ride shit out until the market is good again, until it's in a high point. Because at that high point, you're able to sell your stocks and take the money with you and be like, bye bye stock market. So you want to you want to invest ideally like in your 20s, like you want to start saving ideally, 
like something in a Roth IRA or in a Roth 401k, like in your 20s so that that money has at least 40 years to grow. And that gives you a lot of time to ride out the ups and downs of the markets until it's in a good point and you can collect your money and like live a good life. And the nice thing about doing it with retirement accounts is that if you're, if you have like a corporate retirement account, like with Fidelity or Schwab or Vanguard, then you can get access to what are called index funds, where essentially you're not buying whole shares, you're buying like pieces of a share, which are, you know, a share is a piece of a company, they pay their investors, you buy a piece of that share, which is still a piece of the company, but just much smaller. And you can actually do a pretty good job of aggregating the market on a whole. And you want to look for like funds with really low expense ratios, ideally under half of a percent. And I know you're going to be like, what? A half of a percent? That's a little. But we're talking about fees and compound interest. And compound interest is amazing. Like after 40 years of your money growing at a certain percentage, you're going to have a lot of money depending on how much you can save. But if you have fees, even at something like a half of a percent after 40 years, those fees are going to grow too. So you want to be mindful of how much you're saving and also how much of those savings are actually yours to keep and walk away with in this proverbial future of you living on like your retirement accounts. And you want to be really mindful as well of which accounts you're contributing to because taxation is really important. Your taxes are never going to go down for the most part. You know, like the the US GDP is in a weird spot right now. Taxes are most likely going to go up in the future. So you want to be prepared for that eventual reality. Some of these accounts, you should do the research, they have contribution limits. So like a Roth IRA, you can only contribute 6k to it roughly this year, it will grow steadily every year how much you can contribute that you want if you can you want to max out these accounts, you want to like put as much money into them as you can, because it's only going to help you later on down the road, even if it's an account that could be taxed later on, there's ways to minimize your tax burden, like in retirement so that you can still optimize your your savings. But if you walk away from from this with like nothing else, save save in such a way that your savings will grow. Because if even with a high interest savings account, if you're not investing, you're not beating inflation. And the problem with that is like, if if you're not beating inflation, you're losing money because every year the cost of living gets higher. And that means that the money that's sitting in your account is not as valuable tomorrow or a year from now as it is today. And so you have to, it's, it's scary to get involved in the stock market. It's scary to get involved in a world that feels like so uncertain all the time and is only getting worse. But there is a certain amount of risk that you have to be able to tolerate in life in order to live a good one. And an old mentor of mine used to say to me, fortune favors the bold. And I'm gonna be really honest, like on the inside, I'm very fearful. I do a lot to minimize risk. I take very calculated risks. Everything in my life is very planned out for the most part, but I do my best to be brave where it counts because I think she was right ultimately. Fortune and life do favor you when you take risks that can actually pay off. So investing is really important. Everybody should invest if they can. And if they can't, they should be strategizing some other way to at least save for retirement, if not some other goal that would require more money tomorrow than you have today. Yeah. That's that's really great. I think you give a lot of really great tips that everyone would appreciate. Well, thank you so much for your time, Kamani. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Daniel. This was a lot of fun. I hope it's helpful for folks. Hi, Daga. It's so nice to meet you. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself for our audience? Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. My name is Dagmar Wozniak. Everyone calls me Daga. I am a U.S. fencing Olympian. I live in Jersey City. I train in New York City, originally from Poland. I immigrated with my parents and my sister when I was one or two years old, so a very long time ago, but I do consider myself Polish-American. And I'm currently training for my third Olympic Games. Wow, that's awesome. You probably get this asked a million times, but like, what is it like being an Olympian? Like, would you consider it like a full-time job? 
Oh, yeah. I definitely consider it a full-time job, especially when you have athletes, you know, around the world that they've committed their lives to training, are training, you know, two, sometimes three times a day, live in a training center and kind of become the best athlete that they can be. We don't really have that kind of setup here in the United States, but every time I go in, I look at it as my nine to five, even though it's literally the opposite, it's like five to nine. And yeah, going in, learning how I can be the best athlete and then going to international competitions, not with this last year, but testing my skills against the other athletes. Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, for our audience, most of us identify as person to go to college. So, you know, you mentioned that you immigrated to the U.S. Did you like start training for the Olympics? Like when you were a little kid, like how did that work with school and everything? I definitely didn't start training for the Olympics, you know, when I was a kid. It was more of the first club that I started at. It was a Polish coach at a Polish cultural foundation, very close to home. So my parents saw that I was athletic and they said this was a way to practice the language, but also keep her busy because we don't know what's going to happen with her. <laughs> she just needs to be put into sports. I was coming home like dirty from like roughhousing, like, you know, outside. So they're like, we need to put her in some kind of structure. First, it was like karate, gymnastics, and then my dad and introduced me to fencing and it stuck ever since then. So it wasn't any history of fencing in the family. My parents just knew what it was because it is popular in Europe a lot more than it is in the United States. But they just wanted to put me in a sense of community and also just again to stay active. That's how I got into it. And then I just kept going with it. I can tell you even until high school 2006, I didn't have Olympics in the trajectory for me. I was like, that's a whole nother step. We'll get there maybe someday. But I just really enjoyed the sport, really enjoyed traveling, loved the people that I was meeting and experiencing the world when you're 15, 16 years old. It's an awesome experience. That's impressive. That's really cool. So as you know, this episode is about first gems and financial wellness. So not only are you like an Olympian or in practice and train, but also you're an ambassador for Nabit, which is a personal finance app. Do you mind sharing a little more about that? So I was introduced to Navit about a year, year and a half ago. I had met Erin and Maya, and it was an amazing experience. I love what they stand for and why they created the app. So even through my journey with them, not only for them to be able to support me as an Olympic athlete and be a proud sponsor to help me with training, but also just learning the things that they've been able to put out into the world. So improving my own financial wellness in terms of just a person, not like an Olympian or anything like that. But I definitely wasn't making the right choices. I kept thinking like, oh, those things are totally out of my reach. I'll never be able to do that because I don't work a nine to five. But there was a lot of information that I was able to learn from them. We went over my finances together. Maybe not everyone can get that experience. But the fact that they were able to do that with me was just amazing. And to go over that point by point and kind of figure out where I can make improvements, where I can make changes, it's an awesome thing. The information that they have that that's easily accessible to people in the app is something I wish I had in high school or going into college. And not that my parents didn't ever help me out or support me, but you know, when I got to college, I was pretty much on my own in terms of support. So I was receiving, you know, a monthly stipend from the United States, which was coming from the Olympic Committee, but also whatever stipend I was receiving from school. And if I had better, you know, financial information or education, I think things would have been different, but better late than never. <laughs> That's really relatable. Also being a student who received some form of a stipend while in college, that's like a lot of money you just give to a young person. And it's not like, oh, like invest all of it. That's not the advice either. But it is just interesting, like how all these people are spending their money and how they could be spending it better or budgeting. So I think it's really interesting that you brought up some of these like lessons learned, even just from like your experience with Navit. Do you mind telling us maybe one story that you feel comfortable sharing? The first thing that I got really good information from them is about credit. Credit is a sneaky, sneaky thing, especially with like all these credit cards and like bonus miles and, you know, points and all this stuff. So I think I wasn't doing a good job. You know, spending is spending. You can obviously make adjustments with that. But in terms of how many credit cards I had, and yes, I was trying to build credit, but at the same time, I just wasn't managing it well. And I think that was a big thing that I was able to work out with them. And it's the first time that I've been in the green. You know, it was always kind of paycheck to paycheck. 
and just really making things budget to budget in terms of paycheck to paycheck and figuring out like month to month as opposed to longevity of financial wellness. That's what I was able to work out with them. And that was one of the biggest things that I have take away from Navit. That's like really important because credit can be kind of a scary thing. So like, what do you think was like one strategy that helps? Did you like cut out a credit card? Did you like shift where you put payments? Because I know like for me, you don't want to like have too high of a utilization or like one credit card might give you more rewards for your gas than like another one. Yeah. And that's the same thing that I have. Like I, you know, use a United card because we usually fly United. So the more miles I can get on that with every dollar I spend, sure, that's something that I utilize a lot. But it was more of how I was making the payments when I was making the payments. And then obviously, on my own time, I was able to go through and say like, okay, is this necessary? Do I cut this out? And then how am I going to be able to pay off the highest credit card first, or pretty much paying off the little ones first, and then, you know, making the big payments for the more massive ones. Yeah, that's an interesting strategy. There's like, I think they're called the snowball and like avalanche method. It works differently for both people. I think snowball definitely helps you feel like you've gotten that win. And mentality is also a lot in part with having financial wellness. You're looking at everything and you're like, okay, I'm just going to chip away at it a little bit. And every time you're just like, I can't do this. Like, I'm never going to be able to dig myself out. But you get this huge sense of satisfaction when you can knock off these smaller bills and kind of say, okay, this was like a one-time purchase or something happened. I can knock it out of the park and it's done and it's, you know, settled. Now let's focus on, it might be big, but it's a smaller goal because it's maybe singular or there's only two accounts that you need to work about. So I think that was also really helpful. We're like, okay, I can do this. Like I can take care of myself. I'm not struggling. And I think that every day it is a struggle, especially during like this pandemic, people have had to shift so much in terms of what they spend on, you know, how much money they're making. So I think that was also something huge to hit like that. I wasn't necessarily nervous because I said, okay, because of the work that I've put in before, I have a cushion to be able to kind of ride through. You bring up really good point and you know I'm kind of curious like do you feel like people make certain assumptions about you and like your financial situation because you're an Olympian is there something you'd want to like demystify about that you know, I don't want to say that Olympians are starving athletes. Are we making thousands and thousands of dollars? No, but I think it really comes down to private sponsors who you're able to get on your team. Obviously, social media does play a big part in some of these things. How present you are, how many people you can reach. So there's a lot of different things that factor into play here. But I think it's like, oh, when you make the Olympics, you're set. Well, no, that's not the case. And I've heard that time and time again. It's like, no, we still have to work for payment. If we don't do well, then we lose our ranking. And because of that, it reflects our paycheck. So, you know, you always want to be on the up and up and you always want to be working hard. There's no like relax or cruising period. There obviously is like a payout if you receive a medal and that's great. But I think it doesn't come so much from the Olympics in terms of the games doing well. It's more so private sponsors and then whatever side jobs you can have. Like I have a part-time job and then I do some side work just to kind of keep extra cash flowing in. And that has been, like I said, a huge game changer with how I manage that extra income. You're like really relatable. So kind of to that, you know, you started talking about like the extra cash flow, you know, just managing all these relationships. Out of like a bird's eye view, like what do you think is important for you to manage your finances? Is there like a strategy you use? Is it just like a mindset for you? How do you tackle like the finances uh, in your life? Two things that I really have been trying to focus on. And like I said, this isn't something that I knew or thought about and I wasn't ever educated on. So whatever income I've been getting, doing that 10% that goes into a savings or an account that you're not touching, regardless of how difficult the financial situation, and this is where it comes down to, right? If you're working paycheck to paycheck and you have to put 10% and you're just like, well, that 10% should go to paying the bill or whatever the case may be. But I still think it is worth it to set that money aside. And then when you're in a better financial situation, you can either increase that percentage or keep it the same. But as long as you're keeping that kind of like off the side and just say like, all right, I cut this out. Now, how am I going to deal with this money? That has been a huge plus for me. That's not something that I ever really learned. You know, it was just like, don't spend money and you won't have bad credit. Okay, but I do have to spend money and I have to technically save because when it comes to a really terrible rainy 
rainy day, what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to pull, you know, Hail Mary funds? So that was definitely a huge thing. And then, you know, obviously like managing finances moving forward and setting goals. So when we're talking about mindset to think, oh, it's totally out of reach. It's not possible. I feel like things are possible. We just need to do the research and see how we can manage the situation. So for me, I was like, yeah, I'm making some money, but buying a house, that's not possible for me or taking a really nice vacation, whatever the goals are. I was just like, I just got to pay this bill. That's my number one goal. And then once I started shifting things around and being able to sit down, plan, make that one month plan, make that one year plan, then things really started to shift. Just like any problem, you have to sit down and plan it out and tackle it and like face it. You know, (laughs) it's really funny because, you know, I talked to like Maya and Aaron about different situations. It's like I can sit on a stage and like compete in front of thousands of people and I'm like not afraid to face that at all. But it's like, whoo, finance is scary. Like I can't look at this right now. So it's like, well, where is the confidence shift, you know? So just having that reflection and being able to look at like what your goals are and being able to plan that out is again, the mindset, which is so important. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, it's just shifting your perspective from, like, money is scarce, it's unavailable, to, like, there is money out there, it's abundant, and also literally just telling yourself, like, wait, if I save, like, $100 a month now, actually making the plan, like, okay, I can go on this trip in, like, a year. Maybe it takes me six months if I get ahead. Like, the incentive. When you have a goal, and, like, you can see it, like, you start to problem solve for that goal rather than to be like, oh, this is never going to be a thing. Exactly. One time I tried, okay, I'm cutting out expensive coffee because coffee is just like through the roof in terms of prices right now. And it's not good for me. So what am I going to do? So one thing I said, okay, every time I had the, you know, inkling or like the habit of getting a coffee, I would deposit that into my savings. So it's not like I'm not going to spend the money, but it's like if you were to spend the money, like do something with that money. So it's like little mental tricks that you can do. I mean, it's like don't eat the donut, you know, or something like that. And, And instead people, I don't know, snap a rubber band on their wrist, but they do something else to replace the behavior. And I think that you can figure out what's going to work for you. But again, Google it ways to save money, take a dollar, you know, every day and like put it in a jar, eventually, you're gonna have some money in that jar. So it's a dollar a day. That's not a huge commitment or something like that. So I feel like there's ways that you can replace the behavior of this negative, I can't do it. I don't have money. How can I move forward? How can I reach those goals that I want? Yeah. And then, you know, kind of like a different topic. Do you invest? And if so, like, what's your mindset there? Or like, was that something that you talked about with Navit? Or is that something you were doing for? I've never done that before. And I can tell you that the first thing that I did was I think I saw it on Instagram, like a local person was writing a book about investment, and especially investing as a female. For me, that was definitely like a dirty word. It's like, no, I have no idea what I'm doing. But once I started reading about it, all you have to do is just like ask some questions. It's accessible to a lot of people. If you just do your research, there's chances being taken. But like, what are you going to do? Just sit on your money and like hope it doubles. And, and you know, like all of a sudden you magic goose egg. No. So I think being able to go in with more educated information in terms of taking risks, I'm not like really great in terms of investment, but I am thinking about, okay, we're going to buy this house. We're going to flip it. We can use it for rent. And for me, that was something that wasn't even like on the drawing board. To me, it's because become a small thing now. I hear you. Just to reiterate, it's important for people to do their own research. Just like read up on it. Like it's not as out of reach as you think. There are some ideas like maybe you never would have thought to explore before, but they're in reach if you just do some like little work. Do you have any like resources you might like recommend for people, especially women interested in finances? Navit is definitely a great app to do. And not only that, it's easily accessible. On your phone, you can look at it and they have all these articles that pop up, which is great because it's like, again, it's that educational aspect. That's not something I had growing up. So even just kind of staying current with something like that, and these are people who are doing their research, who believe in what they're putting out there, is definitely something that I feel more comfortable reading. Doing the research and going out there and like trying to see what other people have to say about like managing finances and seeing, does it apply to you? Does it not? Again, I think with the internet there is do your due diligence for sure but there's a lot of great websites or news articles and stuff like that in order to make appropriate decisions for like what you can do moving forward yeah well thank you for sharing that if you could give like one or two simple tips what tips would you give to someone who is just trying to like get started figuring out how to manage their finances 
first of all, like write everything out, your monthly expenses or like what you're spending on, how much money are you making and just make a blueprint of like what your situation is. Because if you're just going like transaction to transaction, then like you're never going to get a bird's eye view of what's going on. And then on top of that, see where your income is coming from. Can you improve it? Maybe you do a really good job and you haven't asked for a raise, you know, so there's different things that people automatically think it's like a stop thought. And most of the time I've heard, especially females ask for a raise, their boss is like, finally, like I've been waiting for you to do it. And you know, I just needed you to have the confidence to do that. So that's the first step. When you hustle, you hustle and you deserve to be valued for the work that you're putting in. So asking for a raise is obviously going to be the one step to, you know, improve income. And then the other thing, like I said, having the bird's eye view of what your finances are, where they're coming from, and then making that plan. What is it that you want to achieve? That's something that, you know, I even was like, uh, uh, you know, when I really had to sit down and think about it, what were my goals? What do I want to achieve? And, you know, it's like, oh, I want the house, I want the car. But what do you really want? When we sit there and we see social media or like what our friends and family have, it's like, oh, well, I guess I should want that. And that's a lot of stress that's putting you in a terrible mindset of like, I don't have access to all these things. So I think sitting down, making a blueprint, what exactly do you want? And how are you going to achieve it? Is it going to take you a year? Is it going to take you a couple months? Is it going to take you five years? If that's your goal towards working to having like the home and the neighborhood that you want, then I think it's doable. And any kind of extra bonus or something like that, you can plan accordingly. And instead of, I don't know, YOLO and going out there and having a good time or having a vacation, maybe you put off the vacation for now and put it towards that goal that you want. So you can get there a little faster. Those are some really great tips. And this whole conversation, I think, has been really informative. And I'm really looking forward to like seeing like what changes like our audience might consider making in the future. But, you know, I just want to thank you again for your time. Well, I want to thank you all for listening to this episode on first trends and financial wellness. I hope you learned something here today. Uh, I definitely learned a lot. As someone who spent the past three years learning about personal finance, I'm still always surprised about what I can learn from my peers. One thing that stood out for me with John is this concept of churning, like how you can use credit card rewards to basically make you money. And in some cases, you can even make over $1,000 a year just using credit. And then with Kamani, just better understanding as we continue to move along in our career, like understanding what are those things that we needed that we couldn't ever afford, but like are actually really important. Therapy is one of them. So, you know, as you're continuing to figure out what your budget is, like make sure you're including items that uh, help you just be a better you. Uh, You should be paying for therapy if you need it. And it's for everyone. And then lastly, we have Dagmara. And, you know, Daga shares some really good insight into as an older first gen, how we can continually like improve our practice around financial wellness, um, whether it's better use, better utilizing our credit cards or just reaching out to a financial advisor to like learn how we can be doing things differently. So with that, I hope you all really enjoyed this episode and um, keep listening. Thank you. Have a great one. Bye.